Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Associate Professor Anna Clark is an ocean lover, fisher and historian at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has extensively researched the history of beach culture in Australia, an important place for thousands of generations of Indigenous culture, a place of last resort during the Great Depression, and a place of upheaval during the more recent Cronulla riots. And throughout all that time, it has been vital for food and industry. I started by asking Anna about her connection to the ocean. does the beach mean to me? Um, there's so many things. Uh, I feel um, I feel really nostalgic when I think about the beach because it reminds me of my childhood and you know, people who died in my family who showed me how to fish and uh, and fossick and snorkel. Um, but it also makes me feel very present in that kind of mindfulness sense. I really crave going to the beach and being in the water uh, as a way of sort of, I guess, reconnecting with the world. Um, weirdly, because I guess it's otherworldly in many respects when you're snorkeling and swimming in it, but uh, but, it, but it, I love the way the beach, both when you're walking along it or fishing or, or swimming in it, sort of takes you out of whatever things are going on in your life and just puts you very very much at the in the sort of in the present moment of, of the natural world it's really restorative have you always felt like that or is that more of a recent feeling? I think so yeah I think I have from a very early age I was um I, I bought a you know snorkel mask when I was really young as soon as I could have pocket money um, and I love, I always loved sort of sticking my head in a little rock pool or as I got bigger and more confident swimming out a bit further and, um, and seeing what was under the water. And I've also always from a very young age loved fishing. Um, and I, you know, it's not necessarily something that lots of little kids like cause it's, there's a lot of quiet in fishing and a lot of nothing happening, but, uh, I've always really enjoyed just Sitting and you know watching the tide turn or watching a kingfisher fly past or a fish jumping, uh, I've always found it um, really a great kind of pastime, an important one too. Do you get much time for that these days? Uh, yeah, I think I do. I've um, I um, have managed to work part time, which is great. So I always have time in the week when uh, kids are at school for me for, to be able to go off and um, have a snorkel or a fish or a paddle on the water uh, uh, um, worth every cent that I'm not earning to be able to go off and do that. <laughs> where, do, where do you go? Uh, well, I live in Sydney. Um, we live in Sydney, my family. Um, so I usually go somewhere close to the city uh, around Gordon's Bay or Shelley Beach uh, in Manly or around Botany Bay has some lovely places to snorkel or fish for um, fish for squid. Yeah, but then on my uh, in the holidays I usually head down the south coast of New South Wales 
where my grandparents' old farm is and we sort of camp there uh, and it's by the beach so I spend all our days camping and fishing and swimming which is a beautiful way to spend the school holidays. A lovely way to spend school holidays and um, you couldn't do it last year because of the, the bushfires I guess but this year at least you got to do that. Yeah, well, we were actually living there last year during the bush when the bushfires were coming, so we had to evacuate, um, which was very terrifying. And um, the reminders of that um, awful time are all around us still when we go down to the beach because there's still, you know, black leaves washing up on the water. But um, we, uh, it's just been lovely to go back these past few months and spend lots of time again there after the drought you know it's really sort of wet and and um and it feels like the bush is really coming back to life and uh yeah you know with in the midst of the COVID pandemic um it's actually great to be able to go somewhere in the natural world and and just you know the fish don't care that there's a pandemic and the birds and the kangaroos don't either <laughs> it's very uh kind of restorative to, to be in a place where the world goes on, the natural world goes on at least, even though we are often caught up with what's going on in a, in a, in our kind of global lives. Your academic research, you've done a lot of research into the history of, of fishing and, and the beach in Australia. I guess mm -hmm. that's, uh, did you come to that uh, because of your love of fishing and, and beach and the natural world? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a studied history at university and and um, gone on to become a history teacher myself at university. Uh, and my area of research is has been until quite recently. It's been about Australian history and um, and I guess the politics and the contests of Australian history. You know why Australian history is so why people disagree about it so much or why. There's a movement for, you know, changing the date of Australia Day and so on. I'm really fascinated by those debates about Australian history. But my, I guess my, um, my secret passion, <laughs> which is not so secret now, of course, is uh, is swimming and and fishing and uh, and the ocean. And uh, I've been trying to redirect my professional interests towards my personal ones, which is slowly coming together i'm i'm very happy to say <laughs> that's perfect and i read your um article on the, in the conversation about the history of of mm -hmm. sort of the beach in australia which which i thought was was really fascinating and i've always found it really interesting that there was a period of time where the beach wasn't a particularly desired spot you know we would dump sewage and and all the rest of it off there and it wasn't mm. the, the fancy location that it is now I'm interested in hearing what you what you think about about that and and the different views of of the beach over time. Yeah, I think for a long time, um, the beach was more more inclined to be seen as as a resource. You know that you might extract things from it, um, like fish, for example, um, or or use it as a dumping ground, as you say. Uh, and that's not to say that people didn't connect with it or love being at the beach but definitely there was more a sense of it being a resource that you could exploit uh, and I suppose for a long a, a lot of the 19th century in Australia in particular um, a lot of people 
weren't necessarily Australian-born. I'm talking about the non-Indigenous population here. Uh, and so they didn't kind of connect with the Australian landscape in the same way as their children and grandchildren. And when they thought of um, a comforting landscape, it might have been a landscape from Europe or England. And it took many, you know, several generations for, uh, I suppose, people to be born here and think about home as being here and to think about the landscape around them as something that might be of interest and even special. Um, and that coincided, uh, I guess, troublingly also with the sort of um, the moving off of Aboriginal people from traditional country uh, around the cities in particular. So, uh, you know, the beaches in Sydney, for example, and and the national parks immediately around Sydney became not only of interest for uh, Australian-born um white Australian-born citizens, but they also became seen as sort of safe because uh, Aboriginal people had been moved off country for the most part. So uh, a lot of Australians, um, I guess, connected with this natural, began to connect with this natural world, which has given us great sort of, uh, you know, I think a lot of Australian identity comes from the bush and from the beach, but I think it's really important to be mindful that the, the flip side of this connectedness to the beach happened because um, other people were sort of taken away from it so that so that white Australia or um, certainly non-Indigenous Australia um, could could come to terms with the the landscape they were they were in. That was an interesting point that I'd never actually considered that the you know the Royal National Park, which is a big massive park in Sydney and one of the the first places in the world to to be a declared national park, it's uh, you immediately think, oh, that's a good thing, but it, of course it meant that it was excluding mm. the original inhabitants from the area, and I hadn't I hadn't thought mm. of that before, and it's a, it's, a, it's it is a really interesting uh, two sides to that coin that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's worthwhile, you know, understanding that so much of Australian history is that two sides, and it doesn't mean, like you said, it doesn't mean that the national park is bad. Uh, we, you know, it's this incredible resource that we should all be really grateful for. But at the same time, it's it is really important to think about the historical context of these places and this country that we connect to, whether that's sea or land, um, and that it, that for um, you know uh, that that it was other peoples before it was. Um, before it was colonised, and and what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean that non-indigenous Australians can't feel connected to it because so many do, and I'm one of them. I absolutely feel that you know I feel deeply connected to um, to a, to a lot of Australia, the Australian country. But it but it you know I think we do have to remember and be mindful of of, of where it has come from and where we have come from as as a nation as well. You mentioned some really interesting things about the Indigenous history with the beach, with, with um, the Middens and, and up in Weeper. I, I don't have a great deal of knowledge of like what ancient Middens are. Um, could you um, tell me what, what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so a lot of, um, a, a lot of the sort of archaeological uh, understandings of uh, ancient Aboriginal societies and culture they come from oral histories of course and uh, from um, material 
culture, like objects that are passed on through the ages and art, uh, and also um, these things we call middens. And middens are, I guess they're like time capsules, but over time, you know, like a longitudinal time capsule where what people have been eating and doing uh, in terms of making implements um, and eating food, midden um, means literally like the, the cast off. So it's uh, it's what people left behind. Um, and these often have been accumulated um, over time. So thousands and thousands of years, people have camped, Aboriginal communities have camped by various places um, and, you know, had a feed of mussels or chipped some stones to make implements and tools. Um, but every year or every season, these middens have been added to in turn. And in some places, uh, for example, in Weeper in North Queensland, the middens are some middens are up to 20 metres high. So you can imagine just how many, <laughs> how many years people have been going there, and and the sort of knowledge um, of that area that must be accumulated over that amount of time. Uh, and in a number of places, uh, for example, around Port Phillip Bay, um, Flinders Matthew Flinders, when he sailed into Port Phillip Bay in the early 1800s during his circumnavigation of Australia, he, one of the notes he made in his diary was this huge build-up of shells uh, around Port Phillip Bay, and that was partly um, shells that washed up in storms, but it was also middens, um, and they were mud oysters that uh, people um, that, that people had been sort of eating for thousands of years on the banks of Port Phillip Bay. And then when um, uh, Port Phillip Bay became settled and, and colonised and increasingly built up, those middens were actually um, dug up and burnt to make lime for the mortar to make the buildings of Melbourne. So there's this kind of extraordinary, I suppose, um, Oh, what do you call historical trace that starts with Aboriginal people, um, you know, being in the water and and diving at, for for um, oysters and then creating these enormous middens on the bay that are then in turn dug up by the next sort of wave of uh, colonists and um, and burnt to make the buildings of of one civilization that was basically, um, you know expropriating the land of another it's amazing isn't it? i mean that's thousands it's thousands of years of shells and then and then it's all lost in such a short period of time yep. yeah and i think the important thing about a lot of these uh, aboriginal archives like middens and and art galleries and oral uh oral histories is that they really have accumulated so much knowledge of country and um we, in our attempts, you know, it, it feels like this moment in Australian history with the Uluru Statement from the Heart and so on, there's a bit, uh, and things like, you know, I'm, I'm aware of this having um, lived through the bushfires last year on the South Coast, there's, there's a sort of a, a belated recognition that there might be really important knowledge in that, you know, in those um, Indigenous understandings of country and that it's only now yeah, um, that I think a lot of non-Indigenous people are sort of 
thinking about what that means and what that might mean for living in a, in in Australia and in the Australian landscape sustainably. You know what aspects of um, Aboriginal knowledges do does the broader Australian population need to sort of take on meaningfully in order to live here sustainably. Oh, I mean, there's there's clearly so many things that we could learn about bushfire or bush management and all the rest of it. Mm. The idea that Australia wasn't covered in bush, it was actually managed for uh, for however mm. many thousands of years. Um, there's a lot to learn there. Mm. And, and fisheries too, no doubt. Well, that's what I was going to ask about about the fisheries as well. I mean, that you hear stories of you know the amount of fish that were were off the coast, and you know being able to just put your hand in at Bondi and grab a fish, or the amazing you know, yeah. kelp forests of of Tasmania and whatnot. There's the coast and yeah. the fisheries have changed so much. Absolutely, and you know, obviously, um, sustaining sort of sporadic populations uh, of Aboriginal communities is not the same thing as a as a large industrialised economy of 25 million people. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from those knowledges and, and what it means to uh, treat the ocean uh, as a resource that will that will keep on sustaining sustaining us. You mentioned a really interesting tidbit I wanted to ask you about, talking about Indigenous oral histories and the north coast of Queensland and what's now the, the seabed for the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, there's incredible accounts um, both for around the Great Barrier Reef and also in Port Phillip Bay um, in Victoria. There are Aboriginal oral histories of their inundation. So that's about 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. Uh, the ice caps melted and the sea levels rose by, you know, several um, hundred metres. And so the coast of Australia was much further out uh, and the Great Barrier Reef was not there. The coast was further out, obviously. And in Port Phillip Bay, for example, the bay wasn't there. It was just a river valley and the Yarra River essentially flowed right out through what's now Port Phillip Bay out through the heads to where the ocean to where the ocean was. And um, there are actually um, Aboriginal oral histories. As I, I was reading a guy, uh, an account from a guy in the eighteen forties who was travelling through Port Phillip Bay, for example, and he said that there are um, testimony in the district from Aboriginal people who could account for uh, and told stories of the inundation of Port Phillip Bay, and the same goes for um, what is now the area where the Great Barrier Reef is. That you know there are actually oral histories of the water coming up um, and what that means. Uh, and so, if you think about you know what our knowledge, um, sort of modern Australian knowledge of, um, I guess the coast is a few hundred years old. Uh, it, it's just in, almost impossible to um, compute what it might mean to have a knowledge of the ocean and the coast that stretches back thousands of years, literally. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing to comprehend. To me, it's like looking up at the stars and thinking that there might be billions of stars up there. Like It's kind of almost impossible to, to understand what it means to actually have histories and knowledge that stretch back into deep time like that. And in, in one of your articles, you mentioned something really interesting about how 
uh, it was thought that you know lorikeets appearing at a particular time of the year would would indicate that there was a particularly good sea catch at, at another time of the year. How it was all yep. connected and how all those those stories kind of made that case. Yeah, that's right. So as well as that, I guess that's what um, that you know, extensive and deep time history enables the accumulation of really detailed knowledge about how the natural systems in Australia are interconnected. And when I was researching for my History of Fishing book, I was reading a lot of, um, I guess, colonial journals and sources of uh, explorers' journals, really. Um, And they were sort of walking up and down the coast and and meeting Aboriginal groups and relating extraordinary sort of... um, accounts from Aboriginal communities about when certain things would appear, um, like the example you gave, you know, when the rainbow lorikeets appeared in the mountains, it means the mullet would, would be running, or um, when a certain wattle appeared in flower, then it would mean that the prawns would be about to appear in the Shoalhaven River. And, you know, that, that kind of um, incredibly, I suppose, detailed uh, knowledge of, of the natural world and the landscapes is just uh, yeah, it's very profound, and it's also quite moving because it 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 seems um, it seems so far away from the way we inhabit. Uh, certainly, the way I inhabit Australia, um, <laughs> it would be incredible to have that knowledge. I think. people were forced to go to the beach because they couldn't live anywhere else couldn't afford it needed to go to fish there it was a again it was, I guess it was a working place but it was also a place of last resort in a way mm. yeah that's right there's a sort of amazing stories of all around Australia during the Great Depression when you know unemployment was up to 30 percent in some areas and in some occupations and people were you know desperate there's no sort of job keeper going on then uh, and for a number of people who were driven to sort of desperation and, and starvation they ended up moving into these kind of shanty communities by the coast because they could always fish uh, it's sort of been this this retreat um, and when it's interesting actually reading some of the oral histories from this period obviously they're like you said they're forced to it's a place of last resort uh, and, a, and a place of a, a sort of a decision forced by desperation, really, where people would go and catch fish, both for their families, but then also to be able to barter for other things that they needed. But in the oral histories themselves, they also really reveal um, a great kind of connectedness to the ocean. And although it was a really tough time in many respects, and these were unemployed people with with no money and sort of building little shacks out of driftwood. Um, and and stones from from the from the ocean, they remembered the time as being very kind of basic but fulfilling, and that living according to the tides and the swell and the weather was um, was kind of restorative at some level, as well as as despite the reasons why they had been forced there. And I guess the other the other time of unrest in the beach, at least at least in my mind, 
in more recent times with the Cronulla riots, but that's a, a different a different reason. Do you think that the beach is just a coincidence that was based around that, or do you think there's kind of a deeper? I think it's probably a deeper um, a deeper kind of um, more disturbing element in that um, particular conflict. Where I guess, like I was, um, we were talking about earlier. You know, the, the beach um, was taken off uh, traditional owners um, by colonial Australians. Uh, people have often been moved off the beach in Australian history and and and, um, and so that sense of entitlement and who owns the beach um, is not necessarily straightforward uh, or, or fair or <laughs> clear cut. Um, and when there is, you know, a sense of, I suppose, um, racist elements of what Australian identity is and, and if there's a kind of a stereotype of the blonde, bronzed Australian on the beach, um, that's actually a, a really exclusive kind of um, mythos, I suppose, because it's it's sort of implying that the beach is for some people but maybe not for everyone. And... You know, and I think that's I think Australian history shows that to be the case that there is this sort of you know Australian identity is is um, based on these kind of you know lots of positive elements of feeling connected to the landscape and being outdoors and um, reveling in this kind of freedom that might not have been possible um, you know in 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 other places in Europe and the UK where people have come from. But at the same time, it is kind of it can it can be exclusive and it can be um, excluding, and that if you don't sort of fit into that um, conforming narrative, then you're kind of excluded for, from it. And I, I think all of those things contributed to the Cronulla rights. It's a it's a yeah, it's a it's a sort of a disturbing element of Australian national identity. I think that. Hasn't been resolved, and and possibly um, speaking with my historians hat on, possibly sort of reaches back into that sort of um, colonising time of people being moved off. What's what's next in your uh, for your research? Are you is this an area of active research, or are you um, looking more in, into other areas of, of Australian history next? Uh, you know, I would love to keep researching um, in sort of environmental history around the beach and and the ocean. Uh, I don't know if that's possible. Um, you know, the vagaries of funding and research funding and so on. But uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, it's. Uh, I have had so much fun combining my two passions of um, fishing and 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 beaching with my professional expertise. So I would, yeah, I would love to keep going in this area. I think it's it. it the great thing about environmental history is that you're able to tell so much just by describing the place itself, and then also the place itself is able to to carry so much of the story because it can hold. Um, you know, contrasting interpretations and different generations over time. 
I think it's a really rich sort of setting to be to be doing Australian history. So I'd love to keep going in this area if I could. And do you swim much yourself when you go fishing? Do you jump in the water or is it strictly I do. boat? I do, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I love swimming in the ocean and particularly snorkeling in the ocean. Um, uh, yeah, it just takes me out of the cerebral... Um, you know, research archival writing lands that academic history um, kind of <laughs> entails and takes me to somewhere that's, yeah, really beautiful. And, and what do you think your next, or where will be your next holiday then? Back down the south coast? Or I guess we're kind of stuck in New South Wales at the oh, moment, yeah. aren't we? We're stuck in New South Wales, aren't we? So um, I think so. I'm hoping to do some, I've done a little bit of research out in Brewarrina in far western New South Wales, so I hope to go back there soon. Uh, and uh, we've booked to drive up to the Great Barrier Reef and, and uh, snorkel there in July if we can, fingers crossed. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, we'll be hugging the New South Wales coast, no doubt, and uh, jumping in whenever we can. Does the, do the inland lakes and rivers hold the same appeal? Um, as a historian, they do for me, uh, but I guess because I haven't grown up in the inland, I don't feel so... Um, you know, I don't feel so connected in that way. You know, I, I don't know the the fishing or the walking as I do along the coast. Um, but yeah, that's that's something I'm I'm getting better at, and hope and will hope to continue fostering that connection over time. Thank you very much to Anna Clark for that fascinating historical tour of Australian beach culture. If you'd like to dive into anything you heard in this episode, please get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you can find links to Anna's work. Thanks again. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on The Pod.